I want to just encourage you again, if you have not purchased my books, um, most of what I'll be teaching you at least is in part dealt with in those books. And uh, you can study it in more depth. <coughs> I'm sorry I couldn't bring as many of my uh, newest book, The Satanic Revival, as I would like to have, but uh, due to the graciousness of Marge, uh, we are going to have opportunity for you to put your name on a list, and we'll see that those are sent to you at the author's discount price, if you'd like to have it. Above all, I'd like to introduce you to this little um, prayer book. I guess that's what you can legitimately call it. Prayer Patterns for Revival. There's seven of them in here. If you've not really learned how to pray doctrinally about important issues, uh, I think this little book will help you. Written prayers have great merit. I'm convinced of that because God put so many of them in his word. And by the way, you cannot profit more than memorizing the written prayers of the scripture and praying them back to God as your own. It's one of the most life-enriching experiences uh, God has given to us. And when Jesus was asked by his disciples uh, to teach them to pray, I'm surprised sometimes that he didn't say, the way to pray is already in the Psalms, in Moses' prayer, in Nehemiah's prayer, and uh, other great prayers of Scripture. And so I hope that uh, many of you who need to systematically pray for revival, my wife and I pray through these every week, seven of them, different one every day, when we're together, we alternate paragraphs, and we found them so helpful to keep us on focus in really interceding before God for revival. I would like to, this morning, introduce you to the interfacing of our enemies that we face and learning as much as we can from a biblical perspective about our enemies. And so to introduce us to them from the scripture, turn to that early book that was given to the church, the book of James, uh, chapter 4. And in these opening verses, we have the three enemies that we face that David knew about. I was sharing with the folk in church Sunday school yesterday morning. Uh, psalm 91. What a beautiful warfare psalm that is. A beautiful prayer. And uh, one to claim for your own protection and your family's protection. But David many, many times prayed for God to deliver him from his enemies. 
And he knew his three enemies just like we must know them. Spiritual maturity demands a biblical understanding of who your enemy is, how he seeks to keep you from living out the victory that, that has been purchased for you, made available to you, and the divine remedy that God has provided over each of our enemies. Notice how he introduces the book of James, or the fourth chapter. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He first talks about our internal enemy. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now there's volumes in that opening text in this fourth chapter about our flesh, the internal enemy that we have. But we also have an external enemy. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. That's strong language. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he first deals with the internal enemy, then the external enemy of the world system of things, before he comes to our infernal enemy, the supernaturally evil enemy called Satan. And even when he begins to talk about Satan, he first talks about God. And the major step to victory over Satan is this statement in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. What an important statement. The very key in heart to overcoming all of our enemies is really wrapped up in that beautiful statement. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Just by the number of verses there, the number of words, there are five times as many words 
that have to do with submitting yourself to God and resisting Satan. And one of the important things that God has taught me, having thrust me really miraculously, as I shared last night, into spiritual warfare study, one of the things that he has continued to press home to my heart is the urgent need for balance. We must be careful that we don't become, in any sense of the word, Satan-centered in our approach to life. Satan is very clever to try to deceive us in two major ways. One is to cause us to just ignore who he is, how he works, and the victory of the believer over him. That's deadly. But the other extreme is if we become so preoccupied with Satan and his kingdom, we've fallen into a serious entrapment. I often say to people, there are three words to keep in mind in the subject of spiritual warfare. The first one is the word balance. The second is the word balance. And the third is the word balance. Now, I obviously state it that way for emphasis. We really need to be balanced. We need to be biblical. And we need to be brave. There isn't any words more important in the subject of spiritual warfare. To be balanced, to be biblical, make sure what we're teaching uh, is what the Word of God says, and then uh, to be brave, to step up against our enemies with absolute confidence and courage and never be intimidated. And we have that right. The Scripture says in that 91st Psalm, if we make the Most High our dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so you don't strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. That's courage based upon the absolutes of the word. And I have found it very necessary to claim great passages like that since the Lord led me into spiritual warfare. 
And we're all involved in it, whether you realize it or not, especially as missionaries and those in the Lord's work. Satan hates you with a cruel, cruel hatred. And he would destroy you if he could. Now I want us to spend some time this morning just looking at how our enemies interface with each other. And I believe it's wise to start with the biblical uh, way that James lists them. In fact, in my humble judgment, he deals with them in the order of their importance because there isn't any enemy that any of us face that is quite as deadly as our flesh. Our internal enemy. And this enemy is deadly because, as Pogo put it in one of his cartoons, we have met the enemy and he is us. And uh, that's really what the scripture's dealing with when it speaks about our flesh. I found it helpful to draw a diagram. And um, that's supposed to be a circle, better than usual, but uh, not perfect by any means. This is a diagram that I first discovered from Watchman Nee. Bill Gothard has used it. Uh, to illustrate um, man and his person and his problems in his seminars. Uh, Watchman Nee uh, used it in his books, The Spiritual Man, to describe the struggle that man faces with himself. And um, I like to Use it. Now, you may be a dichotomist in your theology, and if you are, um, I'm going to uh, present a view that has to do with the tripartite division of man's person. I personally believe it's more uh, in keeping with the overall view of Scripture, but if you're a dichotomist, I don't think uh, we'll uh, have too much problem because you still believe uh, concerning that inward part as those of us who are trichotomists believe. Now we have three parts to us. We have our outward part that we live in called our body. And then we have an inward part that we often refer to, and the scripture does, as our soul. And then we have that part of us called the spirit. Now it's in your soul that your mind, your intellect functions, and your will, your ability to act and decide, and your feelings or your emotions. 
this part of you uh, uh, is what makes up your personality. Now, something happened to man's created perfection because of what we call the fall. God had made a very strong statement to Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day they would eat thereof, they would surely die. Now we need to look at that in light of this uh, biblical description of who we are. What part of man died? Did his body die? Well, the sentence of death, we might often say, entered his body. But Adam lived, uh, what was it, 900 years? Uh, probably after uh, he fell. So that's ripe old age, I would say. So even though the sentence of death entered his body, um, it didn't die that day. Neither did his soul die. You see, he could still uh, think. He could still will to act. And he still had emotions that were very fearful and uh, wanted to hide from God. Now, this part of him was corrupted. But the part that died the day that Adam and Eve sinned was the spirit. Our spirit is that part of us that's capable of knowing God and loving God and worshiping him and delighting in him. And uh, uh, so uh, the uh, uh, spirit was no longer able to commune with God, to serve God, to love God. Now, what is meant by death, theologians have differed on. Some theologians believe that the spirit ceased to exist. Others say it went back to God. My personal view is that it just was not capable of functioning. It was not capable of obeying the Lord, loving the Lord, responding to the Lord, delighting in him as God had created man to do. But something wonderful happened when you receive Christ as your Savior. And the classic text that speaks about that is John 3 and verse 6. Most of us know it by heart. It says, that which was born of the flesh is flesh. That's a tremendously important statement because it has a lot of information about this enemy you face called your flesh. Now he's talking about natural progenesy. That through your natural parents, 
You received your flesh. What did that involve? Well, you received a body from them. But you also received your soul from them. Uh, little babies have a mind of their own. And uh, they can will to disobey. And uh, they have feelings and emotions that can cry and smile. And from the time they're born, they have these qualities that keep developing. Um, we are parents of uh, three daughters, and um, uh, they have presented us with eight grandchildren, and probably while I'm here with you, number nine will be born down in Brazil. I'm calling my wife every day, and we're keeping in touch to see how things are progressing. And like every grandparent, I don't know why my grandchildren are so much more perfect than my children were. <laughs> but uh, uh, my second daughter and her husband had twins, a little boy and a little girl. And they're just about as beautiful as two children could ever be. And uh, they just had winsome personalities. But as difficult as it is for me to admit it, it was obvious from the time they were just toddlers that uh, they had a very sinful nature. I remember one time watching them in the playpen and little Cambria, the girl, could uh, pull herself up and take a few steps before Andrew could, even though he was a little bigger than she was. And so she was learning to stand quite well when he was just barely making it on his feet. And if he did something to displease her in the playpen, if he was standing up, she had learned already just a little shove, and he would fall. And she'd look so pleased with herself. <laughs> the sinfulness of our nature begins to be displayed the moment we're born. And it's because we've been defiled in our body and our soul. The medical community tells us the day we're born, we start to die. In the cell, tissues set up of our bodies. And as we get older, even though our minds remain young, our bodies keep telling us the sentence of death is in them. And our daily life keeps telling us the sentence of death is also in our mind and will and emotions. So here's where your battle with the flesh centers, in your body and your soul. Now John 3.6 states a marvelous truth. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, that's telling you and me that when you were saved, something wonderful happened to you. You were born anew. You were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You were brought to life. And so this part of you, your spirit, came to life again. The Holy Spirit took up permanent residence in your spirit. Now, I have a very strong conviction, and I believe I can prove it to you from the scripture if I had time to really develop this. But this part of you that was born of God the day you were saved is as holy and as righteous as it's ever going to be. There isn't anything that needs to happen to your spirit to make it more ready to step into God's presence and enjoy him forever than the Holy Spirit has already done. You have been renewed in righteousness and true holiness already in your spirit. Now that's important theology because it has to do with the living out of your victory every day you live. Let me just illustrate why that's important. I mentioned to you that uh, it's been my practice for many years to get up early in the morning, two, three, four mornings a week, and walk with the Lord in shutaway times of prayer. But I'll have to tell you, I have never once that I remember gotten up and gone to prayer where my body and soul weren't rebelling all the way. I felt tired. And I'd much rather stayed in the warm blankets and slept. But as I grew in my prayer life, God began to teach me out of his word that there was a part of me that just loved to get alone with God and to get to know him and to love him and to serve him. And so... Consequently, I soon learned to pray. Lord, you know that old sin nature of mine that has its function in my body and my soul really doesn't want to be here this morning. It's rebelled all the way, but I affirm that it's dead with Jesus Christ to ruling and controlling me and I'm so thankful you've put a spirit within me 
that just can't wait to get in your presence and to talk to you and to listen to you and to learn about you and to grow in obedience to you. I can't tell you how helpful that's been to me. I don't believe I ever come to prayer, but what? I recognize that and profit from it. And I just invite the Holy Spirit to be in charge of my mind and will and emotions and body and to energize me to come into the Lord's presence. You see, doctrine and theology is not meant to be something we learned in Bible college or church. It's, it's, it's truth to be lived. You see, truth makes us free. And it's the will of God that Christians be free. And when you begin to understand some of the wonder of this, it has very, very practical benefit as you serve the Lord and fulfill your role as a husband or a wife or a mother or a dad and uh, get along with your fellow compatriots in Christian service. It's just absolutely essential. There's no way you can be the kind of parent you ought to be or wife or husband or servant of the Lord without understanding and applying and living and walking in the truth of your victory over your internal enemy, your flesh. We're going to talk about that probably this evening because our time is rapidly growing. But I must show you the interfacing of these three enemies, as I promised you. This larger circle represents our external enemy, which is called the world. Now, there are essentially two words in the Greek that are translated world in your New Testament. Both of them are our enemy, our external enemy. One is the word uh, I own. Long O. That means the age, particularly the philosophy of the age in which you live. Now, I don't know what you think the philosophy of this age is, but uh, I think it's pretty much wrapped up in the word meism. Number one, and ultimately, that's not just the team that you support. And when they're ahead, everybody's shaking number one. But it has to do with attitude and outlook and function in our culture. Watch out. 
for number one. That's the philosophy. And by the way, philosophies change in the history of man. And some folk might say it's materialism. But whether it's materialism or meism, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? I watch out for myself. The other word is the word cosmos. And uh, that is the organized structure. That's the system of things. Um, for example, uh, we have an organized structure to all of the various expressions of the world. Now, what is this world? You know, without a very poor view of worldliness and most of our concepts. Remember Dr. Robert Cook one day saying that most of us have an idea of worldliness as I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. And uh, that sometimes is what our philosophy of worldliness is. But we live in a world system that's always coming at us externally, putting pressure upon us to conform to its standards, to its uh, philosophies, desiring to uh, reap its rewards and its benefits. And this world system has a way of appealing to our bodies, to our minds, our wills, and our emotions. Now, the world system is to be understood in the expressions of its philosophy and its organized structure. What is uh, the expressions of this world? Well, one of that we listen to almost every night when you listen to the news, the world of sports. Now, what do they mean when they say that? Are they talking about a planet out there where they have sports? No, they're talking about the philosophy and the organized structure of the sports system. And uh, that puts a lot of pressure. But it has so many other expressions. For example, the world of education. That's powerful today. We, uh, that is one of the chief uh, battles that we all face, not only with our own outlook, but uh, with our children and our young people. And in this new age movement, the world is just being swept uh, with the pressure of its values of new ageism in the educational system. But there are many other expressions. There's the world of uh, music. You ever consider how deadly that is to our children, young people? 
those of you who counsel, and find many, many young people being drawn into rebellion against their parents, rebellion against society, rebellion against God, and even being drawn into Satanism just through the world of music, blasting them, pressuring them to conform to its values. You ladies know about the world of fashion. That's a very powerful influence uh, upon many people. We have, we certainly have the, the world of economics. We have to live with uh, our economic system. We have the world of politics. And uh, we're seeing that lived out on our televisions these days. And uh, we're seeing a lot of fleshliness, too, coming out of that whole scene. Well, the world of entertainment or mass media, the world of peer pressure. You see, the world, in all of its various expressions, keeps putting its pressure on us to conform to its value system to conform to its standards, uh, to go along with uh, what it wants you to do. And sometimes the pressure is tremendous. And it's so subtle. Sometimes our children, they just can't really cope with the pressure. They've got to have the name closed. They think, dress like the other kids. Go where the other kids go. It's a pressure system we have to live with. Powerful enemy. No way to overcome that enemy except by the biblical standards God has set forth in his word. Now we have a final enemy that I just want to interject here because it's so important. The infernal enemy. And I like to illustrate this enemy with a series of wavy lines that uh, reach out into the world but extend right into the inner person because this invisible, powerful, devilish, spiritual kingdom is not limited to put pressure on us externally. This enemy can actually reach right in to our person. Put thoughts in our minds that we think are our own thoughts. And they're so cleverly done that unless you begin to understand what you're up against, you will think those thoughts are your thoughts. Now let me illustrate it in its most extreme because I think you'll see it quickly. But it's by no means limited to these extreme illustrations. This kingdom, this infernal, powerful, supernatural, evil kingdom, 
is capable of coming at you in any way that it can come at you and seek to put control upon your thoughts, your feelings, and even your will. And it's capable of assaulting even your body. Now, let me just illustrate it in closing today. <clears throat> I suppose one of the most common things that causes people, <clears throat> excuse me, causes people to call us at our center, the International Center for Biblical Counseling, is this problem. And one of the things that will cause anybody to seek help is when they begin to have thoughts in their minds like these. They walk through the kitchen and a thought comes into their mind. Pick up that knife and go back and thrust it into your baby's body or plunge it into your husband's heart. Now you can imagine the torment that that brings to a person who doesn't understand his enemies that person immediately begins to wonder, what kind am a monster am I to have thoughts like that? I would die for my baby. Am I going crazy? Well, that's only one of the extreme ways. The enemy is capable of, by this infernal power putting thoughts in your mind and will and emotions that are devilish satanic and you'll never defeat that until you understand it and use the remedy God has provided you to be triumphant over Satan now tonight, we're going to look at the flesh in detail. And we're going to try to answer three questions as we deal with these enemies. And I'm not sure how far we'll get with all of them. I especially want to deal with uh, the flesh and Satan. If I don't become too wordy and long, we might get to the world too. But... Uh, at least we want to deal with the victory that God has provided us. And we'll answer three questions. What is the biblical definition of each enemy? How does the Bible say, this enemy will assault me? And the third question, what is the biblical remedy God has provided me to walk in triumph over the flesh, the world, and Satan. And when you know that, you're equipped not only to walk in greater victory, but to teach others. I personally feel that the greatest defeat being lived out in the body of Christ today is not 
Satan, or even the world. It's our flesh. And if we really understand how to walk in victory over that fallen, depraved, wicked, sinful nature we inherited from Adam, we will have come a long way in defeating the other two enemies. May God help us to understand that. Precious Lord, sanctify to our hearts your word and encourage us together, we pray, and teach us what we need to know in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.